Over the past five months, we have been looking at Jesus' commands. We started in February, and we have worked through about five phases as I look back at it. It seems to me there have been about five phases that we've gone through, and I wanted to run through those very quickly this morning to discover where we are today. We began by looking at the passages where we are told to listen to God. And of course, that began on the Mount of Transfiguration for us, where the Father said to listen to Jesus, His beloved Son. And then we discovered that we are to believe that He and the Father are one. And so when it is He speaking, it is in fact the Father speaking to us. He communicates us the very words of God the Father. And His message was very simple. The kingdom of God is approaching. The time is fulfilled. And we're to repent and to believe the good news. And this then became the foundational message of Jesus throughout his ministry and beyond. The next phase, then, we looked at following Jesus, not just listening to God, but following Jesus. And, of course, when he tells James and John and Peter and Andrew, and then later others, to follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, He was inviting them to join him in his ministry to reach a lost and dying world. And then he said to enter through the narrow gate. And that reminds us that when we follow Jesus, the way is not the broad way, it's not the easy way, but that in fact it is very exact and a very disciplined way. And he then told us to follow the commandments. Though we're saved by grace, And we are thankful for that. And not a single one of us can keep all the commandments perfectly. We know that if we follow Jesus, because he fulfilled God's commandments, we obey those as we walk along. And then he told the rich young ruler to go sell everything that he had and give to the poor, and he would then store treasure in heaven, and then come follow him. We saw that what we are to do is to be totally sold out to Jesus when we follow him. Nothing comes before him, and nothing should come in between us as we follow him. And then we also heard him say to Satan to be gone, to go away. Nothing should distract us. Nothing should deceive us. We should stay focused on God as we follow Jesus and as we walk in relationship with him. He said, if you then wish to enter life, you must follow me. And then in the third phase, we looked at trusting the Lord. What it means actually to believe is not just mentally to accept something, but to trust with all of our being. And the first thing that we looked at was believe my works. Because when you believe my works, they prove something. They prove that my Father is in me and I am in the Father. And those miracles, as we will see today, prove something. They proved His deity. And they also validated his message through his supernatural power. Trust the Lord. We come to him and we do what? We give him our burdens. We come alongside him and we put on his yoke and we yoke ourselves with him. And we share our burdens and our responsibilities with him. And we don't try to do it all by ourselves. When we trust the Lord, we abide in him and his words abide in us. And then we're given the promise We ask what we will, and it will be given to us. When we walk with Jesus every step of the way, He promises then He will take care of every need, and He will help us in all of our ministry. And then finally, in that third phase of trusting the Lord, we saw that if we pray believing from Mark's gospel, 
Whatever we ask for in prayer, if we believe that we have already received it, that it will be ours. We're told there, if we trust God for His will to be done, He will provide everything necessary to accomplish it. And then we moved into the fourth phase, broadcasting the gospel. He said, you know, when we stand to testify for Him, no matter where it is, on the street side or in the school, or even before governors and kings, not to worry beforehand. Prepare beforehand, but do not worry beforehand what we're going to say. Just say what is given to us at that time, because it is not we who are speaking, but the Holy Spirit. We're told to rely on Him then when we give our testimony as we broadcast the gospel. Then he said, what I tell you secretly at night, and what I whisper into your ear then, what you should do is to speak it into the light. Go to the housetop and proclaim it boldly. And there we see that we're to take an open stand for the Lord. In the broad daylight, in fact, it's not really daylight out there, it's a dark world. And we take the light of the gospel into a dark world, and we do so boldly. And then he returned to his original message as he told his disciples, as we will see today from Matthew, the 10th chapter, preach the kingdom. Preach the kingdom, disciples. Preach that the kingdom is near, and then go out and do something about it. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. And from that, we know that proclaiming the gospel is more than just speaking. It is ministry that we are actually tasked to do those things even today, maybe in some sometimes different forms. And then finally, in broadcasting the gospel, we heard that we are to let our yes be yes and our what? Our no, no. We're to speak very clearly, distinctly, not disingenuously, directly, and not let the cunning ways of the world be ways that we evade our responsibility or mislead people. And then finally, we came the last few weeks, to building the kingdom. Lift up your eyes into the fields. It's not four months yet to the harvest, for the harvest field is white. So we're to wake up and realize that the harvest is ready and the time is short. Pray to the Lord of the harvest as we did earlier and beseech Him, beg Him to send workers into His harvest field. Yes, the harvest is plentiful, but most churches across this nation right now are short of harvesters. So new people need to come into the kingdom. New people need to be saved. And those that have been indolent and perhaps have not been involved in the harvest field need to be refired re up and to get out into the harvest field. And if we pray to the Lord, He wants to provide those harvesters, and He will provide for that need. And then as we go, we're to make disciples of all peoples and to teach them and to baptize them. You see, the harvest is more than fishing for people. It's more than being fishermen. We're also told to do what? We're to then build a kingdom. We help to win the lost. And then what we do is we show them how to follow Jesus. And if we love them, we will feed them. We will feed his sheep, as he told Peter. We are called to be more than fishermen. We are called to be shepherds and to shepherd the flock and to feed them. And then finally, last week, he told us, what kind of food to feed them, and what, what kind of food to feed upon. To feed on the living bread and to drink the living water, and to take joy in that wherever we are. For out in the workplace, we do not have to follow the curse of the laborious days of drudgery. If we see it as God's place of ministry, we can take great joy in providing living bread and living water to those around us.
And so we see that we have heard that we should listen to God. We should follow Jesus. We should trust the Lord. We should then go out and broadcast the gospel. And beyond that, we should be responsible to build his kingdom. And today it brings us then to a, a, sh- a shift in our phase. We shift to li- listening to Jesus, listening to what he tells us in the next few weeks about how to serve others. The background for this, Matthew the 10th chapter, as we look at our passage today, verses 12 through 14, is that Jesus has begun his ministry at Nazareth, and he's been rejected there, and then he moved to Capernaum. His base of operations was probably Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house. Probably that was the first home church, house church. And then he went to Jerusalem. We find in John, the second through the fourth chapter for the first Passover, Passover, returned to Galilee, and then he taught through all the towns and the cities. He went throughout Galilee, and he taught in all of their synagogues. He taught by the sea. He preached on the mountain, and then he healed diseases. He cast out demons. He raised the dead, and he cleansed lepers. And those five things are very important to the story today. The teaching, the healing, the exorcism, the cleansing, and the resurrections. And his fame spread. It spread through Galilee to the north into Syria, from Galilee to the west into Phoenicia, to Tyre and Sidon, from Galilee down into the Decapolis, and into the south, into Judea, and specifically Jerusalem, and even into the region across the Jordan that we call the Transjordan. His fame spread everywhere. And people knew that this was a very unusual rabbi. He was not just a teacher with words, but he had great power to transform people's lives. And then we find him going back to Jerusalem, probably. This is when it happened in John, the fifth chapter to the second Passover. So he's been in this ministry for about a year. The event today in Matthew 10 was before John the Baptist was executed and before Jesus retreated and fed the 5,000 out near Bethsaida in a wilderness place. And it is after, probably, because almost certainly it is the same event that we find in Mark's gospel in the uh, the sixth chapter, it was after his second uh, rejection at Nazareth. You see, what he has done is he has trained his disciples. He has trained them over a year, and they have observed by his demonstrations of power the works of the kingdom. Two dramatic miracles over nature. These are the ones that are recorded now in Matthew's gospel and a couple from a couple of the other gospels by this time. Two dramatic miracles over nature. He has stilled the storm. He has changed water to wine, and they have watched this. He has performed many exorcisms, but three are listed. The one in the Capernaum synagogue, and then the exorcism, the casting out of 2,000 demons out of the Gadarene demoniac in the Decapolis. And then just before this event in Matthew, the 10th chapter, he has exorcised the demon out of a mute man. They have seen him reach out and touch a leper, and instantly he has been cleansed. They have seen him heal multitudes of people. But six have been recorded so far. He has touched Peter's mother and healed her of a fever. The centurion servant, while he's in Cana, he heals a centurion servant from afar just by a word in Capernaum. He has healed a paralytic that has been lowered through the roof, and not only did he heal him physically, before he did that, he healed him spiritually by forgiving his sin. He has has healed the withered hand 
of a man in the synagogue, and then the religious leaders chastise him for doing it on the Sabbath. A bleeding woman who has had this issue for many, many years just touches the hem of his garment, and instantly she feels that her body is healed and transformed. And he says, it's because of your faith that this has happened. And then in John, the fifth chapter, just before this, we see that he has healed a man that has been ill for 38 years by the Bethesda pool. He has performed two resurrections. They've seen him then raise the widow of Nain's son from the dead. They have, a few of them, the inner circle have seen him then resurrect Jairus' daughter. The point about all of this, and I know you know these stories, is the disciples have witnessed him doing these things of ministry very powerfully. He has fully transformed and brought the peace of God into these people's lives. And now he commissions him in Matthew, the 10th chapter, to go do the same thing. He authorizes him to heal in Matthew 10, to heal and to cast out demons. But if you look at the Markan account, he also authorizes him to preach the gospel. And then he assigns them five tasks. And you can guess what they are because we have just mentioned them and we demonstrated those. He says, you're to go preach the kingdom and to teach it. And then heal the sick. You too, raise the dead. You also cleanse the lepers. You as well cast out demons. And then he sent them out, Mark tells us, in pairs into Galilee. And as they went, there was no place to stay. There were a few inns, but not many. Wherever they went, they had to rely on a network of friends, associates, to find hospitality. And Jesus told them, now what I don't want you to do is to take a long train of baggage with you. Don't take anything more than is necessary to live from day to day. Don't carry any money in your, in your purse. Don't take a staff. Don't take a, an extra robe or sandals. Just take the provisions that you need because what you're going to do is you're going to go into houses. You're going to stay in homes. And you're going to seek out, you're going to depend on, the word here is worthy people. Worthy people, and they are going to help supply your needs. Because you know why? In verse number 10, if you look at it in Matthew 10, if you got it open there, open it there. Verse 10 says what? The worker is what? Worthy of his support. So, in this day and time, Jews considered it an honor if a visiting rabbi of some eminence would come to town and they thought it was an honor to host that person. Now, there is no more famous rabbi in all of Judea and Galilee in this region today than Jesus. He has performed all these mighty works. And as he sends the disciples out in pairs, and as they go to these towns, people know that they are representing this carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus, who has performed all these mighty works. And for some, they will consider this a great honor to host the disciples. Others will oppose them. And so we come to the story today in Matthew's gospel. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 10, 12 through 14. I'm going to begin in verse 11. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. And stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. May God bless the reading of his word and let's have a seat.
The parallel passages are found in Mark, the sixth chapter, and in Luke, the tenth chapter. And the Lucan passage is a little longer. You know, the first thing that we see here is he tells his disciples to stay where? To stay with worthy people. They are to search out. And the word there is the same word that was used when Herod told the Magi when they came to see him. You go search. You look diligently. I want you to find that Christ child. He told him because he wanted to worship him, but he was lying. So it's that kind of searching diligently, carefully, to seek out worthy people. The word worthy is a word from which we get basically axis. It means value. It means something that, that is weighty and of value and is befitting for a specific purpose. Now, the point about this is when they, when they search out people in these towns, it wasn't a moral assessment. It, it wasn't search out people who are morally good, although hopefully they were, but that wasn't the point. It wasn't a social assessment. It wasn't go find the finest house and the person with the biggest accommodation, in that sense, worthy. No, this was seek people of the same value. That's what the word means. Followers of good faith that are befitting the gospel. And stay there. Stay there till you leave the town. Don't move around while you're in that town. When you look at the Lucan passage in chapter 10, it explains it a little bit more. It says, do not keep moving from house to house. It's not just stay there. Don't move around. Why? Don't waste your time looking for better lodgings. Go to the first place that's offered to you. Don't give the appearance of wanting more. Don't go from house to house and then create divisiveness because it's some kind of competition. And oh, by the way, I've told you to move on. Go from town to town to town to town. Don't stay in that town too long going from house to house. And then give your greeting and bless that home with peace. Now, the Matthew account, when you look at the version that I read, the New American Standard Version, to me is a little bit confusing. Because it looks there like you pronounce a greeting and then you pronounce a blessing. They seem to be two different things. Listen to it again. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, then do what? Give it your blessing of peace. But in fact, when you look at the Luke passage, the greeting is the blessing of peace. For Luke says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. The King James Version, I think, does a little better job in this instance of communicating what is being said in Matthew. He says, and if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. The NIV says, and if the house is deserving, let your peace rest upon it. So the idea here is what happens is they walk into the house and they give a greeting and it's a one-time greeting. It's not repeated. And it goes out and it's, here's the peace that comes from God and then, if the house is worthy, then what you do is you confirm it. You let the peace of God then rest upon that house by then pronouncing it. You see, the principle here is worthiness. Disciples should bless homes and bless the people in those homes who value, there's that word, worthy is the gospel, because they're worthy workers. So you see a balance here. Worthy workers with the gospel come to people that are worthy, they value the gospel, and they're receptive to it. And there's a kind of balance here, and that's found in that word. You see, this was more than just a traditional shalom blessing. It was more than just peace, shalom. It's very much like the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you what? 
beasts. You see, that was specifically for the covenant people. And this is a kind of covenant blessing in the new covenant that Jesus is pronouncing. You see, he's inaugurating the the kingdom of God, and, and peace is breaking out. We find in John, the 14th chapter, peace I leave with you. Peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. It's that kind of peace. It's the new covenant peace that after his resurrection, when he appears behind the closed doors in John's gospel, three times in chapter 20, he says that. It's the first thing that he says to his disciples, peace be unto you. He says it twice to them then. (laughs) And then when Thomas shows up at the next meeting, the way he starts that meeting is, peace be unto you. You see, this is the peace of God that he is pronouncing. It is the peace of God to God's covenant people. It becomes the apostolic greeting in almost all of the epistles, every one of Paul's epistles, both of Peter's, two of John's, and Jude, almost all the epistles except Hebrews and James and 1 John, the greeting has peace in it. And with Paul, it is usually what? Before peace. What does he say? Grace and peace be unto you. You see, what that tells us is peace is a product of God's grace. Now, what's happening here? Jesus has given his disciples the power to bless, to bring peace upon these homes. How do they do this? They have borne witness of the power of Jesus that has brought peace into people's lives. Think about it. When he preached the good news, he did what? He preached God's redemption and reconciliation, peace. When he heals the paralytic man, he forgives sin, and he removes the barrier between that person and God, peace. When he stilled the stormy sea, he brought peace. Not just to the sea, but to the hearts of the disciples in the boat. When he cast out demons, he then, as a result, calmed troubled and turbulent souls. When he, when he healed people, he instantly relieved them of debilitating and tormenting diseases. He brought peace. Peace was not just a word. It was not just about preaching. It was transforming lives. When he cleansed lepers, he removed the impermeable barrier between them and the rest of society and brought peace between them and society. You see, they have seen Jesus in these mighty, dramatic, miraculous acts bringing peace into every corner of the land and into people's lives. And the disciples are called to do the same thing. They were called to convey the peace of God. When they go into these homes, it's a gift that they bring. To whom? Worthy people. People that are willing to listen as apostles, they brought peace. How so? They, they brought the gospel of peace. They were the messengers as apostles to those that were receptive, to those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. As peacemakers, they came into these homes. They were not only ambassadors for Christ, they were also the children of God's own household. And they go into other households and they go to bring that peace. Matthew 5, 9, what does it say about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? The children of God. These are children of God that are bringing peace into these homes. You see what they're doing is they're bringing the blessing, which is a gift of peace. And it confirms the presence of God in that home because those people that receive them and are hospitable are willing to listen to the gospel. And what the disciples are witnessing in that home is the transforming of that home even before their eyes. You see, they are willing to listen to the gospel, and they're willing to be what? Reconciled to God. So peace is breaking out in that home. 
They came as charismatic ministers. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean charismatic in the popular sense of the word today. I mean they came with the gift of peace. They were empowered with the same gifts that Jesus had performed miracles. He tells them to do what? Go out and do the same thing that I did. I'm giving you these gifts to bring peace. So preach the gospel of peace. Heal people. Cast out demons, bring new life, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. These were all gifts of God's peace that they were tasked to do. And we are today in different forms. They came to not only as apostles, not only as the children of God, not only as charismatic ministers of the gospel, but also as, here it is, church planters. You see, what they're doing is they're sowing kingdom seeds. They're going to receptive homes, even before the resurrection, and I would say that they're sowing the seeds of the first house churches. After Pentecost, what happens? We know then they went through Judea and Galilee and and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And as they did, where do you think they went? Where do you think Peter and John went in Galilee when they then started churches? My guess is they went back through their list to those receptive homes, and they went there first. That's my guess. The Scripture doesn't say so. But I think what Jesus is doing here is He is laying the foundation then for the future church. You see, already the twelve have identified worthy homes that are supportive of the gospel, and that is where the kingdom is going to be built. And then He says this, be discerning. (laughs) Don't bless the unworthy. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house from that city, shake the dust off your feet. I think the principle here is very simple, folks. We should not encourage opposition to the Lord. They were not to encourage those that oppose the Lord. Again, this is not a moral issue, and it's not a social issue. It was... Who is really going to be receptive? Who is going to be worthy? Who has a listening ear? Don't stay in the homes of those that are intent on undermining the gospel. Some principles I think that we see from that today. We should not depend on support that is not from those that support the gospel. Whether it comes from the government or wherever else. We would derive our support from the people of God who support the gospel. Certainly don't take it from anyone that might undermine or compromise our ministry. I think another principle is this. Don't be closely identified with a lifestyle of unbelievers. If they're not going to receive the gospel and they're not inclined to be reconciled to God, don't go and stay with them. Don't be closely identified with them. Paul tells the Corinthians, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness to do with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light to do with darkness? So don't draw your support from unbelievers and don't associate too closely with them and their lifestyles and also avoid any association with evil. For that evil will contaminate your message and your gospel. He tells the Thessalonians, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every what? Appearance of evil. And then do what? Shake the dust off your feet. You know, as Jews would travel out beyond Palestine in that day, the rabbis told them, when you come back, shake the dust off the Gentile territory off your clothes because it will contaminate our holy land. And this is what Jesus was meaning, I think. If you go into a home and it's unfriendly and unbelieving, then those Jews' homes that you go into, treat them like the Jews treat the Gentiles. Don't let their hostility to the gospel 
Don't let their bias against the gospel contaminate or dilute the power of your ministry. You see, these opponents that he's talking about weren't indifferent. These folks aren't just unwilling to listen. They actually oppose the gospel. They oppose Jesus. And later, Jesus has some harsh words for those homes and even those cities. Those that stubbornly resisted the gospel and opposed him, like Chorazin and Bethsaida, and even parts of Capernaum, he had harsh judgment on them. He said it is going to be better in the judgment day for Sodom and Gomorrah. And even those evil cities of Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon, and for those that have stubbornly refused the gospel. And this became an apostolic practice. Remember Paul and Barnabas when they were in Pisidia and Antioch, and the Jews rejected them, and they left the synagogue. They not only went to the Gentiles, it tells us in Acts the 13th chapter, they did what? They shook the dust off their feet. Now, let me be clear about this. I am not saying that Jesus is saying, and I don't think that he was saying, that we never associate with unbelievers. He wasn't saying, don't only associate with believers. Folks, we do that. How will the gospel reach unbelievers? That's not what he was saying. No. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus spoke publicly with women of less than good reputations. Scandalized the religious leaders. He also ate with Pharisees. He also met and tried to persuade and engaging conversation with the religious leaders to accept his message. Jesus went anywhere and everywhere to communicate the gospel, and he associated with unbelievers. What we're saying here is we don't become associated with those in such a way that it contaminates our gospel. We don't compromise the gospel in that association. So let me make a few closing observations. Jesus Christ gives you and me, his followers, the power to bless. That's awesome. You see, peace is more than a state of being. Peace is actually a gift. Jesus gives you the gift of peace. He gives you the capacity to bless. And we do this, we should do it in many ways all the time. We can bless others in a general sort of way with kind words and with prayer. You know, if you're in a store and as you leave, if the Lord puts it on your heart, not just as a shibboleth, but if you decide that the Lord tells you, God bless you, to somebody. Have you noticed the kind of look you get? It kind of startles them. It is a very brief testimony. It's not sharing all the gospel, but it gets their attention and it gets them to thinking at least about spiritual things. If you meet an individual at work or or school or wherever and they have a need and you pray with them, if you ask permission to pray with them and you ask God then to meet that need, you're bringing the peace of God into their life. Socially, you know, um, Beverly taught at a Catholic school here in town. And one day the priest invited all the families to bring their what to be blessed? Their pets. Oh, we shouldn't bless pets. Well, Karen's one of my best friends, okay? There's nothing wrong with asking God to bless the lives of our pets. There's nothing wrong with that social... It's It's not the full peace of God. But you see, we have the power to do that kind of thing. Corporately, we we should do more than sing God bless America. We should do more than carry bills in our pocket. And oh, by the way, today is the anniversary date, 67 years ago. This day, July the 30th, 1956, when the motto in God we trust 
was then proclaimed by the 84th Congress. And we carry bills in our pocket that say that in God we trust. We need to do more than to carry it on our money. We need to do more than sing it at ball games at the seventh inning stretch. We need to pray for our nation. And in praying for our nation, asking Him to bring renewal and revival, that is a kind of blessing. We do those things generally. As ministers of God's peace, and you are, if you are a Christ follower, when you go out from here today throughout this next week, He has given you the gift of proclaiming the good news. He has given you, in one way or another, the gift of healing. He has given you the opportunity to bring eternal life into people's lives, to raise the dead. He has given you the power to cleanse. He has given you the power, maybe not of exercising demons, but to dispel darkness with the light of the gospel. You're ministers of God's peace wherever you go. And as peacemakers, we proclaim the gospel message of redemption and reconciliation. We're reconcilers. We're peacemakers. We also seek reconciliation, not just with friends, but with enemies. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? In the King James Version, it says, but I say unto you, you know, you're told to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you to love your enemies, and then the King James Version has, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you. You see, we have the power to bring peace, not just to friends that we have fractured relationships, but even to our enemies. As fellow ministers, you know, I see this in the chaplaincy all the time. There are some fundamentalists that say you don't work alongside Hindus and Buddhists. You don't work alongside Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. You don't work aside, alongside people that don't believe like you. I don't believe it. I do believe that we can work alongside them. You may disagree with me. What I think that we have to be careful about is this. We can pray for peace in their lives. I can pray for a Muslim friend's, a Muslim chaplain's ministry. I can pray that God will protect that, that Muslim imam. I can pray that, that something that he does actually helps somebody. What I cannot do is I cannot, pr I cannot pray a blessing upon his message. It contradicts the gospel. So we can be supportive of ministers of other faiths, but we should never be drawn in to endorsing their message. Somehow, well, there are many ways to salvation. If it's a false message and it contradicts the gospel, we cannot bless it. What we do is, yes, we pray for those ministers along our side that they will come to a knowledge of the truth and to conversion to Jesus Christ. But we often work alongside Christian ministers, and we should then give every blessing of God's peace. We should, in word of encouragement and prayer, pray that God's peace rests fully upon them, upon their ministry and their message and their harvest. Now, let me come to the last point. Peace of God. As God's church, we maintain or we should maintain the bond of what? Peace. In Ephesians, we're told, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, we show tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have done that here today. Peace upon this house. Peace upon this house and this hill, on this hill and this part of Fort Worth in north central Texas. This morning, after Elias prayed the prayer of confession, confessing our sin and seeking God's forgiveness. Ben stood in your presence, and then he read out of the book of Isaiah.
And when he did, he announced the assurance of pardon and forgiveness of sin. That's about as close, Ben, as I can think of what he was telling the apostles to do. You see, what he did, biblically, he announced the peace of God to settle upon this congregation because we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ asking for forgiveness of our sins. Just like the early apostles walked into a proto-church house church, this morning Ben stepped to the pulpit and he announced, as they did, the peace of God. We should do this in our small groups. We should seek to dedicate our homes to the peace of God. In 1992, Beverly and I moved to, where, where do we live? Starry Court, 5216 Starry Court. Should I say that as we're live streaming? That's where I live, folks. <laughs> Just about seven miles from here. And there were folks that came from the church where we were ministering at that time. Uh, R.C. and Joe Smith, who are no longer with us, they, they were members of this congregation. Uh, C.J. and Lomi Hartgrove, they, they're no longer around. Uh, Lomi is. And then Wanda and Harold Christenberry. And the only one that is present today from that group is Wanda. What do we do? After we finally toted that piano up the two floors into Beverly's music room, we gathered then in our den and we formed a circle and we joined hands and we did what? We dedicated our home to the Lord. Many of you have done the same thing. We were asking for the peace of God to settle upon our home and to use it as an outpost for the ministry. The Karakundas did the same thing last Saturday. They invited us to come there. Many of you were there, and they had a dedication that was asking for the peace of God. And the dedication that we read at that point was what David said after God had promised that his household would last forever. Now, O Lord God, you are God of your word, and your words are true. And you've promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. We should dedicate our homes, and we should ask for the blessing of God's peace to settle upon it. Liturgical churches do it every Sunday. Liturgical churches, after the liturgy of the Word, that is what I'm doing now, all that's come up to this point, everything is the liturgy of the Word, and then in liturgical churches, they celebrate this every week. And before they go to the liturgy of the Eucharist, then the preacher says, okay, now it's time to share the peace. And they turn to each other, and they shake hands, and they greet each other, the peace of the Lord be with you, and then the response is what? And also with you. You see, communion demonstrates what we're talking about. We're going to have communion in just a moment. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. And what does it say? First of all, we actually drink the cup second. But because we're reconciled to Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ to the Father, through His shed blood, we drink the cup, and this celebrates the peace of God between the Father and us through Jesus Christ that is conveyed by the Holy Spirit. You see, peace has settled upon us. And when we break the bread, we, settle, we, we share the peace that we have with one another because we know that everyone, if they know that their brother has something against them, before they have come into this sanctuary to celebrate the meal, they have gone and immediately been reconciled with one another. Or if they have something against someone else, they don't wait immediately as they stand praying, even as they stand receiving the Lord's Supper or sitting. 
they know that they're to forgive that person and reconciliation is brought to the house of God. May the peace of God that passes all understanding settle upon this house and upon your homes. And as you go forward this week, may you take that peace with you. Bless people in many different ways. But when you come across a Christian brother or sister that is engaged in kingdom work, especially focus on bringing the peace of God to their life and encourage that person in the work they're doing for the gospel. And I pray they will do the same with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us your peace through your son, Jesus Christ. That it's more than just a word. It's more than just shalom. It's more than just lifting two fingers in the air and saying, peace. It is peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. We pray that the peace of your son Jesus Christ will enter the hearts and lives of those that might be listening who do not know him today. Invite him into your life as Lord and Savior and yoke yourself with him. Walk with him from day to day and claim his promise that he has prepared your home in heaven with a father. And as we go forward, Lord, I pray, into a dark world as we take the light of the gospel, as ministers of the gospel, remind us that we have the gift of peace that can take many, many different forms to touch people's lives and make them whole. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.